every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis, and welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday, the 25th of April. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore, and it offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Hong Kong's unemployment rate dropped to 3.1% in the three months ending March 2023 from 3.3% in the previous December to February period. It was the lowest jobless rate since the three months ending October 2019. And the underemployment rate also fell by a tenth of a percentage point to 1.2%. The Bank of Japan is considering conducting a comprehensive review of the impact of the monetary easing steps it's taken over the past decade. The central bank may start discussions as soon as its next policy meeting this week on April the 27th to the 28th, which will be new Governor Kazuo Ueda's first policy meeting since taking the helm. First quarter results from Credit Suisse showed it suffered almost 69 billion US dollars of outflows in the first quarter as clients fled the bank in last month's crisis. It added that outflows were continuing even in the wake of the 167-year-old institution's state-engineered rescue by UBS. Credit Suisse reported on Monday that while outflows have stabilised, they haven't reversed and the bank said its wealth management unit lost 9% of its assets in the first quarter. Investor advisory group ISS advised HSBC shareholders Monday not to vote for proposals calling for the spin-off of HSBC's Asian business at the upcoming AGM on May the 5th. ISS said the Ping An proposal, which supported a resolution by individual shareholder Ken Lui calling for the spin-off, lacks detailed rationale. And last week, another shareholder advisor, Glass Lewis, said the strategic review proposal was not in shareholders' interests. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and LUS Economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks closed mixed ahead of earnings reports this week from some mega-cap tech names, including Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta Platforms and Intel. The S&P 500 closed 0.1% higher at 4,137. The Dow ended the day 66 points higher, or 0.2%, to finish at 33,875. The Nasdaq slid a third of a percent to close at 12,037. After the bell, regional lender First Republic reported earnings. The San Francisco-based bank said deposits tumbled 40% to $104 billion US dollars in Q1 and then dropped another 1.7% through April the 21st. The $72 billion drop in deposits was much larger than expected. The bank said it would cut up to a quarter of its workers in the current quarter in an effort to reduce costs. And shares of First Republic are down 23% now in after-hours trading. Chinese stocks extended last week's losses. In Hong Kong, Hang Seng Index dropped 116 points, or 0.6%, to 19,960, trading below the 20,000 level for the first time since March the 28th. 
and since reaching a year high on the 27th of January, the Hang Seng has fallen 12%. The tech index, which slumped 4.7% last week, slid another 0.2%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 0.8% to 3,275 after losing 2% on Friday. That's the biggest two-day slide in Chinese A shares this year. Futures markets are pointing to further falls in the Hang Seng Index at the open, with it projected to start the day 115 points or 0.6% lower. And elsewhere in the markets, US government debt rallied as yields fell, ahead of US first quarter growth figures due Thursday and key inflation data on Friday. The yield on the benchmark 10-year note was down six basis points at 3.51%. And the cost of protecting against a U.S. debt default jumped to a record high on Monday as debt ceiling negotiations continue in Congress. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Tuesday morning guests. We have with us Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultants. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is James Wong, who's Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And over in Washington, D.C., we should find Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Um, Let me start, Barry, in the US and and some of this news about Janet Yellen's speech last week. It seems that China-US relations are deteriorating further because Joe Biden's going to sign an executive order uh, that's going to limit investment in key parts of Chinese economies by American businesses. The administration plans to take action around the time of the G7 summit, which starts in Japan on May the 19th. And also, uh, the US, US officials uh, have asked South Korea to urge its chip makers not to fill any market gap in China if Beijing bans Idaho-based Micron from selling chips. That's according to the Financial Times. Um, Barry, what do you make of these latest developments? First of all, Janet Yellen's um, speech, which seemed to be quite sort of moderate, didn't it, compared to maybe some things we've heard yes. from the US administration? Yes, I think it was moderate. She tried to thread the needle, and indeed that's what the administration is trying to do vis-a-vis China. I don't think that the United States is going to take any substantive action against firms operating in China or further new investment into China before the G7 summit in Hiroshima, which is coming up in about three weeks' time. I thought Ms. Yellen's speech was uh, really quite good. I mean, she certainly said without any reservation that decoupling would be a disaster. She also said that the United States is not trying to contain China. But she made very clear that security matters trump, use the pun, over economic matters. So, look, she's trying to thread the needle. I don't think that um, it's had much impact one way or another, in terms of all of the hawks in, China, in, in the Congress that want tougher action on China immediately. And that cuts across party lines. But Democrats and Republicans want tough action. But Barry, the, the dialogue between the US and China seems to have almost broken down completely. Is maybe Janet Yellen the way out? She is a moderate, as you say. 
Um, do you think maybe if Chinese officials were to maybe restart or discussions, invite her to Beijing, this could be the way uh, to maybe improve relations going forward? I do. I think particularly after Secretary of State Blinken's visit didn't occur, that um, it would be very interesting if sometime over the next two months, Miss Yellen was invited to China. But we'll see on that. Yeah, I don't disagree with what you say, Peter, but I do think that the Americans are trying to not do damage to existing business links and not come up with anything dramatically frightening on security matters. But you mentioned this whole business of Micron, and you have this delicate issue of the South Korean president. There'll be a state dinner here in Washington on Wednesday night. And look, the South Korean leader is deeply embarrassed by the revelations in the leak from the Five Eyes that uh, the Americans were spying on the South Koreans and trying to get them to supply weapons to Ukraine, which ironically, uh, the South Koreans say they may now consider. Stuart, what were your thoughts on this? Where where do things stand? I mean, it's, uh, as Barry says, maybe not much is going to happen before the G7, but if um, the, the US lobbies its allies to support it, maybe other G7 nations could come out and uh, in, in support of the US position. Well, it's very interesting. And Janet, Janet Yellen has uh, become the dove, if you like, from from the U.S. in terms of relations with China. And we've started to see uh, much the same coming out of the U.K., in fact. Mm. Um, and we've already seen uh, France and other parts of Europe beginning to engage again with China. So I think there's been a, a reaction, a political reaction, certainly, uh, um, moving in the opposite direction to the way that it was before, where people were uh, quite negative towards China. I think there's a, there's a political reaction to try to become much more positive in, in terms of dealing with China, uh, to engage with China, do business with China, and and um, and move forward a little bit because I think some of the politicians have realised that uh, perhaps they went a little bit too far previously, and I, th- I and I think that's that's rather good. Now, with regard to this business of the um, the um, request by the U.S. for Korea to um, not make more. Um, chips, um, microchips, um, in other words, to fill up the the gap that's um, being made. You know, bear in mind that uh, Korea and Taiwan, between them, represent about 75% of microchip microchip Mm -hmm. manufacture. Um, One would guess that Taiwan would probably comply almost immediately with anything that the U.S. might ask. So asking Korea to do this... Um, is asking Korea as well and and the major manufacturers to forfeit some potential profits. But we've already heard from Samsung that um, they've had to cut back on chip development uh, and chip um, manufacture because they were unable to sell most of what they were producing in the last 12 months. So it's an interesting market because we don't really know um, who, who's winning in this other than um, there's a lot of politics going on <laughs> all over it. Mm. J- James, to put an investment perspective 
on this. What what are the thoughts of investors? We've seen in in Hong Kong and China last week a big slump in uh, the chip manufacturers. The uh, the tech index was down four point seven percent last week. Uh, are they rattled over this? Yes, a little bit. I, I think the uh, the restriction is not really that uh, uh, rigid because if if this executive order was signed was to be signed, the uh, companies, the U.S. companies will have to notify the government of new investments in China's high-tech sectors, and the U.S. government might prohibit some of these deals. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it prevents the VCs, the PEs, and the JVs in which U.S. companies might be playing, might be assuming a uh, management role, and uh, uh, in which case some kind of technology transfer might be possible. So I, I, I think it basically blocks the whole spectrum of primary market investments, but not saying anything about secondary markets. And uh, if there is any U.S. Uh, funds that are still uh, in the primary markets of Hong, uh, of China's high-tech sector, I think there are not so many left because a lot of them have been withdrawing their investments during the past several years uh, because what Donald Trump has signed the, the executive uh, order that Donald Trump has signed that prohibits the uh, U.S. investments in some of those uh, in some of China's uh, high tech uh, tech high tech uh, companies. Uh, I think I think the the the, the dollar amount impact uh, might not be that substantial. But again, those U.S. companies when they provide funding to Chinese high tech companies, they might as well provide advising and might as well provide technology. So that might be a negative blow to the the Chinese high-tech sector. But I think they have enough substantial... I think the Chinese have substantial um, build-ups in developing 6G or quantum computers. But the only thing that they might not have is the edge on chip manufacturing. Mm. They they don't have the machines, do they? To be able, to, it's not so much that they can't um, don't have the the technology for the chips itself. They they just don't have access to the the high tech machinery that's needed to make those chips and etch um, everything onto them. That's the problem for them, isn't it? So what can they do to try and uh, reverse that? Well, it's it's a very hard question. I don't I don't know how they're going to get those machines uh, out of this ban. But uh, yeah, I, I just know they're. In terms of investments, they are not having enough investments because we can see the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, the 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 R and D expenses for Taiwan Semiconductor is about the same uh, for the entire year of revenue for the uh, the number one chip maker in China. And I don't I don't think China the uh, the, the the Chinese chip makers right now are making enough R and D expenses. Mm-hmm. I think that we we ought to be a little bit more cautious here, though, because if if it is only the matter of machines, then that is also only a matter of time. Because China has the capability of making these things, it's just that it hasn't made them yet, and and, and what it's got isn't sufficient for its own needs, um, which is why it's always bought overseas in, in, from Taiwan and Korea. But I think it will be a matter of time where China will probably be currently um, working flat out to try to manufacture the right machines to enable them to build the, 
Mm. correct uh, microchips for their needs and on that point we we heard news from uh, yangtze memory technologies ymtc one of china's biggest chip manufacturers that's now turning to um domestically sourced equipment to make these advanced uh, flash yes. memory products so that they are taking steps already aren't they absolutely and, and, yeah. and i don't think this is something that we should ignore um and don't make the assumption that is it china is going to be 100 percent reliable re- relying on Taiwan on Korea in the future. Yes. It's just going to to slow down progress. Yes, I agree with that uh, fully, and I think James has got it right. Uh, Look, South Korea is in an awkward position. They have very good relations with Beijing, and they're not going to want to jeopardize those good relations by having Beijing accuse Seoul of taking orders from the United States. I think that the Koreans will try to finesse this. And whether there'll be any restrictions on Samsung going in further into the Chinese market uh, or Hynex, whatever the uh, the company is that makes that uh, chip manufacturing material, uh, we may not hear of this for weeks. And we'll, I doubt if we'll really know what's happening. Mm. If um, President Biden signs this executive order, which restricts um, investment flows into certain types of sectors in China, I mean, this will be the first time that investment itself has has sort of come into the crosshairs of this um, dispute. I'm wondering what um, Wall Street firms are saying about that. Are you seeing any pushback from like venture capital firms um, about this, that it's maybe curbing um, America's ability to grow and and also to develop some of its own uh, sectors? Well, you know, I'm not up to date on this one, uh, Peter. I I would rely on James and Stewart. I think that uh, American companies deliberately are keeping a low profile. They make a lot of money in the Chinese market, and that applies to the auto companies, even though their market share has deteriorated significantly. Obviously, they want to remain in that market and even expand, but they're not saying a thing right now. Mm. No, I think, Barry, the issue is that the American companies are just hoping that, that no action will happen rather than action um, from from what we hear. Um, it's difficult to know because um, that, that Joe Biden doesn't actually sort of follow what the U.S. corporate lobby wants all the time. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's another issue that probably you could deal with better than and we could, but um, I think they, at the moment they they would be hoping that there are no further um, executive orders issued. James, uh, do you think we're going to see pushback from, particularly maybe from venture capitalists, uh, for venture capital firms? Probably not that much, because uh, like like I said, the uh, scale of U.S. investments in China's uh, artificial intelligence chips and quantum computing is not that substantial. I think a lot of American funds have avoided investing in Chinese technology firms for, for a few years now. So that is probably going to not, not going to, th- this curve, if implemented, probably is not going to make a lot of noise um, among uh, VCs or PE firms in, in the States. Mm. Okay, let's turn to the economic outlook. Uh, we had some flash composite PMIs last week from the US, Eurozone and the UK, all beat expectations in the data release Friday. The US service sector expanded at the fastest pace since April 2022. 
Eurozone business activity expanded faster than expected in April, with the composite PMI rising to an 11-month high. UK economic activity accelerated at the fastest pace in a year, and in both of the Eurozone and the UK, a strong services sector compensated for weak manufacturing outputs. Meanwhile, in Japan, activity in the services sector there hits the second highest level since October 2013. Barry, when you look at this PMI data, um, it seems to show economies in the US and elsewhere doing better than expected. No sign of a recession there. (laughs) Absolutely. You're right. Look, how many of those blue chip economic experts have been predicting a recession? Mm-hmm. Now we're already through the first quarter of 2023. We don't have it yet. You reference what's coming on Thursday, which is the first quarter preliminary GDP, and all the expectations are 1.8%. Well, that's not a recession. Mm-hmm. That's not a decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, I think the U.S. economy and the world economy is generally stronger than had been anticipated. And I think it brings into play what's going to happen at the Federal Reserve next week. Because the expectation had been over the last couple of weeks, at least, that uh, they'll pause. Maybe not. Well, the Fed Fund futures markets are pricing in 92% odds of a a rise. Sorry, Stuart. I was just going to say, we've had these discussions regularly in the past about how most economic forecasts are far more negative than the reality. And and all that is happening is that this, this is being proven every every single time, perhaps. The, the, <laughs> You're right. Um, you know, the, the, the real economies are doing uh, probably a little bit better than people have expected. They, but, but, you know, uh, news, the news media especially, they love negativeness, not positive <laughs> stuff. And so, <laughs> Not here. We try to be positive here. We're, we're, we're trying our best here, Peter. That's quite right. <laughs> but what about the, yeah. the, the future <laughs> outlook then? Can this continue? Well, of course it can continue, yes. Yes, it can. But I don't want to be seen as saying that everything is going to remain as rosy as it is now because we've seen these interest rate rises that are having an impact on the consumer. We're seeing more bankruptcies across the board in the retail sector. We have seen a real disaster in the Silicon Valley in terms of venture capital with the Silicon Valley Bank and the First Republic Bank. So there's no doubt that the United States economy is slowing. And you could make a very strong case that that will be really felt in the next six months, not in the immediate month ahead. Mm. James, from an investment perspective, what investors are looking at, of course, is the potential for further rate hikes. I suppose if the data continues like this, the US does escape recession, the Eurozone continues growing um, above expectations, um, we may not see the pause after after this month's uh, meeting. We may get more in May and June. Uh, well, I, I think we're going to see a pause in probably July, and uh, but pause is a different thing uh, from pivot. And mm. I think market is now pricing in a lot of uh, pivot talks at the end of the year. If we look at the Fed fund future uh, implied possibility of a rate cut, you can see we have about 55% of a rate cut in July, which I think is, is uh, not even possible. And uh, I, I think the, my argument is, even though if we look at different data points, if we look at the city uh, economic surprise index, uh, economic conditions are starting to slow starting uh, from April of this year. Back from uh, November of last year until the end of March, we can see the city economic surprise index 
uh, were always on the positive side. But now it starts to slow. But my argument is, uh, I think the Feds, uh, the the ECB or the uh, the uh, central banks around the, around the world in uh, advanced economies, they they have learned that this. Uh, inflation that we're facing now is sticky. We can't just look at the nominal CPI and say, okay, it's going down. We got to focus on the core CPI and the core PCE. And if we can find that there is no sign that this, that the, the core PC, PCE and core CPI is slowing down anytime soon. And that is caused by a tight labor market and tight uh, core service, uh, service price. So I think the Fed is probably going to hold on to a higher uh, rate for a longer time just to suppress the labor market enough to cool down the core PC and core CPI. So in that case, I think the market is being too optimistic in terms of having expectation for Fed to lower the rates uh, within this year. And we are going to get that core PCE data uh, at the end of this week from the US, which is the Fed's uh, preferred measure of inflation. So Stuart and Barry, I don't want to be negative, but here's a fly in the ointment, which comes from Taiwan. And Taiwan is important, isn't it? Because it's often seen as a barometer of a, a future manufacturing output. Well, we saw Taiwan's industrial production plunged in March as the Manufacturing sector was hit by the slump in global demand. Industrial production in Taiwan dropped 14.5% year on year from a downwardly revised 7.7% fall in February. That was the biggest contraction since the global financial crisis in May 2009. Export orders from Taiwan in separate data, uh, which came out last week, um, plunged in March by the most also uh, since 2009. And we also had that warning, that profits warning from Taiwan Semiconductor, which is uh, the world's largest chip maker, warned of falling sales this quarter. Um, Barry, um, when you look at that, we have to take note of this, shouldn't we? Because Taiwan is important in the, in the global scheme of things, particularly in manufacturing in the semiconductor sector. Absolutely. But we've got too many chips right now. This is a very volatile industry. And, you know, Taiwan does a lot more than chips. I mean, good heavens, they're the biggest bicycle importer into the United States market. But, uh, you know, that's that's small potatoes. But, of course, their biggest market, correct me if I'm wrong, is China. So I, I, I don't know what to make of that data from Taiwan, except to say that... Um, they're not the biggest economy in the neighborhood. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that Taiwan is an outlier in terms of the global economy, but it is important as a as um, a guidance, not necessarily for the rest of the world. But Taiwan has its own problems at the moment, and uh, as we know, there's an awful lot of geopolitical discussion going on as to what's happening um, with China looking as though it wants to surround Taiwan every every time there's a US politician visiting um, and you know I think part of the part of this is probably having a negative impact on um, export orders being delivered they, they need to get exports delivered which is that's when it gets countered and um, that's probably a, a factor in reducing the, the numbers here. Uh, Taiwan is important, of course, for the global chip industry. We were talking about that a short, short while ago. And, um, and yet Taiwan is probably not going to fill any gaps that might be existing in China because of the political problems, despite the obvious potential profit. And, and the fact that TSMC is such a, 
an important manufacturer of it and, and is seeing its profits coming down, should not be seen as any great surprise to any of us. James, what should we read into this? Is, is it a, is it a, a warning for, uh, for future manufacturing and for the, the global economy going forward? How do you see it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, I think Taiwan does not stand alone in terms of uh, having a bad trade number. Because uh, I was talking to a couple of my friends in mainland China and in Southeast Asia who own factories and accepted orders from overseas. And they've, said, they've told me the same thing throughout the last year till now that the orders has been uh, very, very uh, disappointing. And it was even as bad or even worse as the orders in 2008 and 2014. So if some of them even told me if, they, if the orders kept being like this bad, they probably will go out of business. So mm-hmm. I, I think Taiwan is not just one example. It's, it's, Taiwan is just one example of how international trade has been uh, uh, de- deteriorating uh, during this year. And I, I think, uh, like Barry said, the uh, semiconductor industry is very volatile and very cyclical. And uh, we, we were expecting a bottom for the semiconductor industry and uh, a bounce back, probably like the ones that was, we, we, we've, we've served in 2018. But it just did not happen yet. So uh, with all the cell phone cell phone demand lower and the automobile demands lower, I think uh, the, the chip makers are going to have a hard time this year. So I suppose this should also be a warning, shouldn't it, for, for China's economy um, overall, although we had that data last week, which showed GDP uh, grew four and a half percent, retail sales up over 10 percent year on year in March. There were also some warning signs in that data um, as well, weren't they? If you look at the industrial uh, production figures, uh, they they disappointed, didn't they? Well, disappointed in the sense that uh, they didn't match expectations. It was up 3.9% um, in March. Do you see also some warning signs within that data? Well, I, 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 I say that just probably one disappointment among uh, a lot of things that are better than our expectation. So we, we've got the uh, credit impulse data coming in. We've got the, uh, the, the social financing data, the, the new loans data. We've got the, uh, the uh, retail expenditure data. And all of them, even including trades, are better than uh, what we previously expected. So I think uh, it might take some time for China to recover, but it is recovery. And, uh, yeah, those, those, data are, those data that we've observed during the past two to three weeks are really good. Stuart, um, when you look into the data, we've had quite a lot now, haven't we, on the state of the economy at the beginning of this year in, in the first, uh, first quarter. Um, are you optimistic as you look into it? I'm far more optimistic than pessimistic, I have to say. <laughs> um, I think that uh, what we're seeing in Asia, um, of course, is some, some negativeness, but, but I think that uh, European economies are doing much better now. There's, they're recovering from... Uh, high inflation, they're recovering from very high uh, energy prices. Uh, And as energy prices start coming down, um, inflation will start coming down and that will start to, that will help to improve the economic outlook uh, in Europe and hopefully will also do the same for America. 
Marie, after the global financial crisis, it was China that really pulled the world out of recession, wasn't it? And there was a lot of coordination at the time then uh, between the US and China on monetary measures and fiscal measures uh, to take. I suppose it's a shame we're not seeing that sort of cooperation um, these days. But it's unlikely, isn't it, that, that China is going to have the same impact on the global economy this time around? Well, I think that is true, what you say, Peter. Uh, that was the real uh, impetus for recovery. What happened from China after the great financial crisis, 08, 09. And there was coordination. That's gone. There's no coordination between G20 countries on any unified recovery measure. However, what we're dealing with is, of course, far less severe than what we had in 2008, 2009. So maybe there's time yet. But at the moment, that G2 idea of United States, China coming up with at least proposals on climate and on recovery, stimulus, etc., or even on interest rates, policy, that's absent. Okay, finally, I just want to get your thoughts on the local markets here in Hong Kong. The, the Hang Seng, um, since it reached a peak on the 27th of January, has fallen about 12%. The tech index slumped almost 5% last week. And we're also seeing capital outflows from, uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, the HKMA intervened for the seventh time this year uh, to support the Hong Kong dollar and the aggregate balance, which is the sum maintained by banks in clearing accounts with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, has dropped to the lowest level in 15 years, below 50 billion Hong Kong dollars. Uh, James, how big a problem is this capital flight for the markets? Yeah, I don't think that's that's too much of a problem because last time we see we saw HKMA intervening. Uh, the uh, the aggregate bank balance once dropped below 10 billion Hong Kong dollars. So right now we still have some some uh, distance to go. And I believe if uh, if the uh, the aggregate bank balance dropped below three uh, 30 billion Hong Kong dollars, the HKMA is gonna raise the uh, the prime rates. And uh, so that that's something we have already experienced. And back then it did not have a great impact on the market. So I don't think it's a huge problem. Uh, yeah, I agree with James. Uh, and I think part of the issue is that Hong Kong people, businesses are very adept at moving money between US and Hong Kong dollars. And when the US dollar is paying an interest rate uh, quite significantly higher than the Hong Kong dollar is, that's where they're going to put their money. And I think once we, if, if the Hong Kong Monetary Authority were to choose to increase the, int the intrabank rate, for Hong Kong dollars, then they, they would start to see some money flow back. Um, and this is not capital flight in, in terms of private money going to Singapore, as, as sometimes has appeared in the media. It's just about wh where is the best rate of interest on your money for a deposit. Mm -hmm. that is, uh, is really influencing this issue at the moment. And, and this is self-correcting, of course, isn't it? Because as the aggregate balance drops, the, uh, the local banks come under pressure to raise the prime rates, uh, which, of course, will start to reverse that. And the carry trade that goes on between uh, Hong Kong and US rates will come to an end. And potentially increase inflation in Hong Kong. Inflation in Hong Kong has probably been a bit lower than might have otherwise been the case. Uh, and Hong Kong people have been a bit protected from it because of this. So I, I, I would expect inflation increases to occur later this year. Uh, and I do think that probably we will expect to see interest rate rises later this year as well.
Barry, the final word to you. Of course, there are some high-profile fund managers in the US who regularly um, attack the Hong Kong dollar, albeit so far without success. They've lost probably a lot of money um, being short um, Hong Kong, but no doubt they'll, they'll be looking at this closely. Well, I suppose they will. But again, I'm going to defer to um, you in Hong Kong because, um, you know, look, interest rates are rising and uh, that is a factor. But uh, Chinese people want to be in Hong Kong dollars, don't they? And uh, as a way of getting their money out of China and into other countries as well. Uh, I, um, the U.S. dollar has gone down a bit, what, 8% in the last six to 12 months, mm, probably could yeah. go further. United States corporations would applaud that. Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts there. You heard um, our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood, um, who is over in Washington, D.C., Stuart Allcroft, Asian fund management industry consultant, and James Wong, who is chief executive at Cathasia Securities. And thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines to discuss them. I'll be joined by personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Fahl, and Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author, William Pesic. And if you want some more information on some of the top stories from the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which is on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 